Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President Dr Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. In the last few years, there's been an ever-increasing emphasis on applying best practice guidelines in healthcare. This has been around for quite some time in hospital settings and for various surgical or interventional procedures, and not surprisingly, has now fed into the care of musculoskeletal conditions, particularly low back pain. Typically, there's quite a lag between the translation of this type of research into practice and guidelines really offer tools for implementation. To address this issue, a group of researchers have developed something called GLAD-BACK, a standardized intervention of patient education and supervised exercises. The first studies developing and testing GLAD-BACK have been with chiropractors and physiotherapists in Denmark, uh, but we also have a pilot study currently underway in Australia. And here to talk to me today about the study and what GLADBAC may hold for the chiropractic profession is head of the Australian study, Matt Fernandez. To give you a bit of a background about Matt, he's a chiropractor and exercise physiologist. He was awarded his PhD in 2017. He's currently full-time lecturer at the Department of Chiropractic at Macquarie University in the area of rehabilitation and orthopedics. And he has presented at numerous back pain conferences, both nationally and internationally. His current research includes physical activity and exercise promotion within a chiropractic setting and is exploring these topics, including, of course, Glad Back. He's also um, a fellow of the Chiropractic Academy for Research Leadership, or CAL, for which uh, ACA is also a, a proud sponsor. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the ACA podcast. Good day, Anthony. Uh, good to see you, and uh, thanks for having me on your podcast this morning. So I thought maybe we could start today about uh, just setting a bit of context. And um, I want to go back to 2018 uh, Lancet Low Back Pain series of papers. Now, these are all about raising awareness to the global burden of low back pain and the frequent and often poor quality care that millions of people receive around the world for low back pain. Could you just uh, start by talking about these papers a little? Yeah, sure. So uh, obviously, uh, many chiropractors and other healthcare providers are, are very familiar with the uh, three uh, paper series in the Lancet in regards to low back pain. And um, there was a, a huge collaboration of uh, 12 uh, different countries and over 30 well-known authors in, the, in regards to uh, the low back pain field. And um, if I was to elaborate a little bit about the take-home messages of each of those papers, I think that the first paper really called out the complexity with respect to uh, low back pain. And obviously it's the leader of disability uh, around the world uh, for MSK problems and, and everything in regards to that. And a couple of things from those papers uh, really stood out. I think the first one was that obviously back pain is, is very complex and it goes far beyond say a biomechanical problem. Uh, back pain is associated with psychological uh, issues, uh, social issues. Uh, genetics plays a role too as well. Also the mood and the current uh, psychological state uh, of patients as well. And in addition to that, you can look at things like such as chronic disease or comorbidities that also have an impact. So obviously that, that highlights that it, it is quite complex. 
the other aspect that I got in the paper was that it was uh, literally impossible to uh, identify an actual pain source or a pain generator within the lower back. So they often refer to it as non-specific low back pain, unless, of course, uh, you have uh, specific diagnosis uh, coming from pathology or uh, radiculopathy. The third part from that paper that I got was that they often, well, they often make a call to encourage high-value, low-cost care as well. When you look at the second paper, it was all about uh, treatment prevention and recommendations. And uh, what I got from this paper was that there is a lot of research in regards to treatment for low back pain, but only a fraction is devoted sorry, towards uh, prevention. And when you look a little closely to the research in regards to prevention, you find that uh, a lot of it has very low quality evidence with respect to things like uh, insoles and uh, back belts and ergonomic advice. So it creates a little bit of uncertainty in how you can trust those results. There's a little bit more confidence with other interventions for prevention like um, exercise and exercise with education too as well. So the paper spoke to those sort of uh, preventative measures. Another aspect I thought that that paper elaborated on was care that was considered somewhat harmful as well. So the use of steroid injections, the overuse of surgery, and also the use of medication, in particular uh, opioids. And another aspect that they spoke about as well was the overuse of imaging. So that was the, the crust of those papers. The third paper was really a call to action. It was really just uh, to make low back pain a public health priority, if you like. And uh, the paper calls for organisations such as the WHO or the World Health Organisation to really put it on the map and uh, really bring together researchers, consumers, patients, stakeholders, policymakers together to uh, basically get a hold of this problem and, and try to improve it. So, yeah, in a nutshell, that's what the three papers, uh, well, that's what I got out of those three papers. And you mentioned in there that um, low back pain is the number one disability in the world. It really is a question about quality of life, isn't it? We're not really just talking just about pain. Yeah, exactly. I think that this uh, creates a shift towards the patient. So when we think of quality of life, I start to think of people's lifestyle, uh, their ability to be physically active, having good uh, capacity for work, good relationships, uh, good sleep. And so this points towards a more... Uh, biopsychosocial model, if you like, as opposed to the more biomedical model, which is very much centred on uh, what the clinician thinks is important, such as what you mentioned, their pain, uh, disability, and you can look at other measures, typical measures that we're used to measuring, such as range of motion and also strength. So there's, there's really is a shift towards quality of life and being very patient-centred. So to, to really help someone with persistent and chronic low back pain, it's important to understand uh, the triggers or risk factors. What are some of the recognised risk factors for chronic low back pain? Yeah, again, it probably points towards that first paper in the Lancet series, and um, there are some triggers or some, some risk factors. I think the most common one that we're all familiar with is having a previous history of low back pain. Others, such as the presence of uh, comorbidities or chronic disease, so uh, we know that uh, at least half of Australians have at least one chronic disease, so you can be listing things like asthma and headaches, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, you can throw in osteoarthritis there as well. We mentioned too before uh, mood and poor mental health as well. Genetics is, plays a big role. So uh, I know in twin studies have shown that the genetic contribution to chronic back pain can be as high as 67%. 
There's also work capacity, particularly when it comes to bending and lifting repeatedly, and particularly when the weight is heavy, uh, that's considered, say, over 25 kilos. And then some lifestyle factors. So if you're a smoker, if you're carrying a little bit of weight, and that's associated with physical inactivity, just a general poor pattern of health, then you can certainly add sleep in there as well. There's obviously a strong relationship with uh, chronic back pain. So there's some of the triggers, I think. Now, uh, you mentioned opioids earlier, um, and, and clearly that's one that's got a, a lot of media attention over the last couple of years. But uh, what are the, the key low evidence and often high risk low back interventions that the authors wanted to see reduced in the uh, care of people with low back pain? Yeah, I think where some of the attention has been directed of late is surgery as well. So Obviously, there's some trials now looking at stenosis and low back pain, and they're looking at placebo surgeries. And that's an HMRC-funded trial, and that, that, that I think will be interesting when the results come out there. And obviously, it's a, it's a, a difficult study uh, to, to run, but it's, uh, it's got ethics and it's going ahead. The use of injections, steroid injections too, as well as another one that might be considered harmful based on what the evidence uh, suggests. And then obviously, as we touched upon, was the opioid uh, crisis. And along those lines too as well in terms of harm is the use of other medications. So uh, more recently there's, there's talk about uh, the combination of say anti-inflammatories with the opioids and also the use of neurogenic drugs too as well and combining them with the opioids as well. So not only the opioids by themselves but uh, combinations. So they're considered harmful. So they're the interventions, I guess, that have been uh, wiped off the list. What's, what, uh, what's on the list? What's supported by good evidence and recommended in the care for people with low back pain? Yeah, so for recommendations and uh, what you would consider to be good care, we need to go back to the uh, back pain guidelines. And as you know, there are a number of different guidelines. And uh, while they generally are consistent, if you look in between them, there are some differences too as well, particularly as they make recommendations into second-line care. So I think from a consistency perspective and these guidelines uh, that are derived from high-quality systematic reviews and, and, and trials, certainly the advice comes up a lot. So advice to be physically active, also to educate the patient that it is a benign problem and, and they will get better. And also to be providing reassurance that this is not a pathological problem or that there's no significant serious uh, tissue damage. So that's more your first line care. Then you look into more second line care and that's where manual therapy comes into its own. And certainly spinal manipulation is, is recommended, not in all guidelines, but certainly in some. You can also throw in the trusty heat pack as well. And uh, some guidelines controversially do uh, recommend other contemporary therapies or complementary therapies such as uh, acupuncture. And that's uh, more in the acute stage. If you're considering more chronic back pain problems, then you can consider all those that I've mentioned and you can add in exercise as well, in addition to some CBT uh, interventions, so psychological interventions as well. And then finally, if it obviously starts to fall into that more high intensity back pain, chronic back pain, then you would go to the next level and that would be a multi-disciplinary uh, managed uh, patient uh, with different professions. And I, I dare say pain management would be at the top of that list. And, so and yeah, I, they're, the, they're the ones for good evidence. And I guess this is the perfect segue into Gladback because um, this is all about using the evidence and trying to develop a tool to make it easier for practitioners to implement that. 
Um, so tell us what is GLADBAC? What does it stand for, first of all, as an acronym and, and what's it all about? Yeah, so GLADBAC is, it stands for Good Life with Osteoarthritis in Denmark. And uh, the GLADBAC program originated from the successful GLAD program, which was originally developed in Denmark for people with hip and knee osteoarthritis. So the, the talk was that uh, every time the GLAD program finished for the hip and knee, participants often ask, where's the back program? So the researchers obviously from, from, uh, from Denmark that were working on the hip and knee program approached the, uh, the leaders in back pain research in Denmark and that's how it came about. And really, if I was to summarize GLAD back, it is basically a self-management program for patients, particularly for persistent or recurrent low back pain. So effectively the program has two real aims and it, it focuses on behavioral change. Behavioural change for the patient in particular, so you push them towards self-efficacy and self-management, but also behavioural change for the clinician as well as they move away from a biomedical model to a more biopsychosocial patient-centred model. So the program really is a standardised intervention that consists of patient education and supervised exercises. In addition to that, importantly, there's a clinic registry associated with the GLAD back program, and that allows the clinicians to collect and monitor outcomes as well. So obviously they can be used later on for various research projects. And um, really in a nutshell, the program shows clinicians what guidelines look like in practice. So it gives them some confidence that uh, if they follow the program, they're actually applying uh, the guidelines. So really it's, it's based on, um, a number of themes and messages and certainly in the education aspect and we can talk later more about the education and the exercises specifically but there are themes and key messages associated with uh, the Gladback program and I can't think of all of them off the top of my head I think there's eight but uh, certainly things like allowing the patient to know that pain doesn't equal harm it's more of an alarm we want the message to be clear for patients that the back is very strong and robust and it's for movement and obviously change happens with patient action. So these are the themes that are really focused in, in each of the classes, but really uh, focused in the education aspect as well. So that in a nutshell is Gladback. So I think most chiropractors uh, as a part of their regular care would um, encourage patients to do exercises, would probably prescribe specific exercises for their uh, presentation. Um, what is the exercise program that uh, encompasses GLADBAC? Is it something that's unique or advanced? Do they focus on core stability, strength, flexibility? Certainly not anything unique or advanced. And um, certainly when you see the exercises and they're, they're set in four levels from easy to more difficult. And when you look at the programs, you'll immediately think, oh, I know that, oh, I've seen that and oh, I prescribed that. And so there's certainly not rocket science from an exercise perspective. As you mentioned, uh, we do look at uh, core stability. We do look at strength and endurance, flexibility, mobility. And there's just uh, a difference, a point of difference with the exercise when it comes to the prescription. Traditionally, when we prescribe exercises, certainly I know I am or have been, uh, there's always been the focus on technique. So if it was uh, wrong, I'd certainly focus on correcting it. But uh, with Glad Back, it's, it's not about technique. It's really about uh, encouraging variation for the patient. So if something doesn't look correct when they're performing the exercise, the clinician in charge will encourage variation. So they might uh, tell the patient to perhaps 
reduce or increase their range of motion. Maybe they would increase their speed or reduce their speed of performing the exercise, or maybe they may just uh, perform it in a different way. We really encourage the patient to explore movements. The second goal with the exercise is to make sure or encourage the patient to feel the exercise where it's intended. So if you're doing a bridge exercise, for instance, then naturally you want the, the gluteal muscles to be the ones that are working and you would point them towards that. And perhaps more importantly with the exercises is to coach them, to encourage, provide that positive environment to motivate the patient to really push them along the lines that they're, they're making great progress and uh, they'll be ready soon to go to the next stage. So this became really clear to me when I went to Denmark to observe a, a class that was delivered in Danish, but the trainer who was the head trainer uh, came over and, and obviously told us uh, in English what was happening. And I remember seeing this lady doing a, a golfer's lift on one leg and uh, was picking up a dumbbell and she was in her late seventies. And if I was thinking with my pure technique hat on, it looked really ordinary and I'm thinking, God, where do I start here? There's no hip hinging, there's no lordosis, it's a forward head carriage, the thoracic is really rounded. And then when I, even before I asked the, the, the trainer when the class finished, he came to me and he said, yeah, you remember that lady in the corner doing the golfer's lift? The fact that she could do it was, was more than enough. He was really happy that she could do it because she got the confidence and could see that she was actually um, performing that exercise. And that they believe is far more important than the technique. So, that's, that's the point of difference. And I think that's a great point of difference. I, I've certainly had experiences before where I've prescribed an exercise and uh, next visit had a discussion with the patient about how they're going. And uh, more than once, uh, someone has come back and said, oh, look, I wasn't sure if I was doing it right, so I stopped doing them. Uh, and I think the difference between that glad back approach, it's really about empowering a person to really rediscover their body. And, um, and something is better than nothing. And, you know, that, and, you know, if it's not perfect right from the get go, it doesn't mean that's not something that can't be developed and improved over time. Spot on. It's good to hear that, um, you know, you can take that approach and, and the key word there, as you said, empowering the patient. And, and that's the, the crust of glad back. It's, it's uh, letting them look after themselves, help them help themselves. So the education component um, of the Gladback program is taught in a group setting. Now, this, just thinking in practical terms, uh, as a practitioner, this would have, of course, economic ad advantages because you're not going through the same um, uh, spiel with individuals. You're doing it in a group setting. But beyond that, I imagine that there might be some advantage in that group setting in terms of having people all together and that, um, uh, I guess, almost group therapy community type feel we're in this together well let's encourage each other and move through this is is there is there a tendency to have those kind of positive benefits with these programs as well yeah i think that's 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 correct that's a good way of putting it and certainly a group exercise is very much encouraged and uh, whether it's three six or maybe up to ten and uh, it is education sessions so the clinician will go through a number of myths and uh, facts in regards to back pain but as you say, it's important for the patients to be given a voice and given the chance to speak about their back problems. And I think this is an opportunity here where they're actually heard and their back pain is, is validated. So they're not making it up or they're not imagining it and they can see that there are like-minded people in there that are also suffering. So you're starting to create that uh, group 
cohesion, if you like, and an environment where people sort of get to know each other, you're hopeful that they like each other and start to trust each other because they're going to work together for the next uh, eight to 10 weeks. So yeah, there are a lot of advantages there. And I think importantly, something that's probably not highlighted in this group exercise is that while the clinician is delivering the class and learning or sort of hearing out the stories, the clinician is actually learning a lot about pain themselves. So they can really be educated themselves. So it's a, certainly a two-way street, but um, I, I think that's, that's certainly an advantage. And uh, for the practitioner as well, as you say, it's not a case of them having to repeat themselves every time. They can do it once and um, just hopeful that uh, they see it as important enough to fit it into their, their schedules and make room for it. So how do you measure the outcomes of these? I'm assuming you use sort of um, standardised um, patient-rated outcome measures? Yeah, so obviously there's a number of outcome measures uh, in regards to glad back. So if we look at the patient, naturally we look at uh, numerous uh, questionnaires, if you like. So your standard uh, pain intensity questionnaire, your disability questionnaire. But uh, some of the important ones are the self-efficacy questionnaires and ena patient enablement. And um, fear avoidance is another big one too. The start back tool from uh, Keele University. So that gives you prognostic uh, information and uh, are they low, medium, high risk. So there's some of the, uh, off the top of my head, some of the uh, outcome measures that we measure. Importantly too, we also look at what the clinician does as well. So we get outcome measures from the clinician. So uh, are they satisfied with the program? Has it changed their beliefs? Has it changed their practice or their, their values? Thought process in regards to how they manage and treat uh, persistent recurrent low back pain. So obviously that's, there's been some studies that have already happened in Europe. What have the results of those studies been so far? Yeah, the, um, the Danes have uh, published a couple of papers and I think it's important to highlight that these papers have really focused on implementation of the program as opposed to uh, efficacy or effectiveness. Certainly, if you want to know the latter, you need to be looking at randomised controlled trials. So at the moment, they want to see whether it's uh, feasible to implement it within a Danish context. So there've been some encouraging results, certainly. And um, as I mentioned to you before, they've measured the clinicians and it's been a positive experience for clinicians in terms of the ease of understanding the material and being able to implement it in their clinics. Uh, certainly their confidence has been high and their attitudes have been good towards the program. But uh, from the patient's perspective, the uh, outcomes have been encouraging as well. Certainly uh, a component of GLAD, which I didn't mention is goal setting. And uh, when patients meet in the group setting, they follow the SMART acronym associated with goal setting. And um, obviously the aim is to reach those goals by the time the, the course is concluded. But uh, most patients are reaching their goals within the first uh, two or three weeks or at least wow. at the halfway point. So in regards to pre and post testing as well, there's a couple of um, uh, orthopedic tests, if you like, or rehabilitative tests. So you look at sit to stand. 30 seconds, sit the stand test, and also the endurance capacity of the abdominals and the erectors. Uh, spinae and certainly pre and post testing has found that patients uh, almost double their time or double the improvement and in some cases triple their improvement. But at the same time, the, there are uh, 
negative aspects, for instance, uh, small aspects such as that some clinicians, sorry, some patients may have increased their medication intake, although the majority do see a reduction in their medication intake as well. So there's some of the positives uh, in addition to a reduction in pain intensity and uh, some modest reductions in disability. So they're some of the findings from the, the Danish papers. I guess whenever you're dealing with human beings, there'll be, uh, you know, that, that element of, uh, of people who don't go the expected way, but it certainly sounds like that there's some uh, positive results there. H how are things going with the Australian pilot so far? I imagine COVID would be a, a, a bit of an interruption. Yes, it has been. So um, after some, some collaboration and, and some talk between the, the stakeholders of GLAD in obviously in the University of Southern Denmark and also the license holders in Australia in La Trobe University in, in, in Victoria. Um, we were given permission to run a pilot study. So again, it was about the feasibility of implementing the program in the Australian context. And for our study, we had four aims. Our first aim was to see whether we could recruit the clinicians and we certainly were aiming for 20 and we recruited a mix of um, chiropractors and physiotherapists uh, throughout Australia. The second aim was to recruit patients and also to retain those patients and certainly all uh, a majority of the clinicians were able to um, recruit patients. We had some clinicians that were involved in the hospital setting, so that was really good to test it. One hospital was able to do it, the other hospital wasn't able to. And uh, part of that, obviously, as you've already alluded to, was the COVID impact. So uh, COVID uh, certainly had an impact where some clinics were able to seamlessly, seemingly move into a telehealth uh, online platform and deliver the classes online, whereas other clinics uh, weren't able to do that. And uh, on top of that, there were patients who were not prepared to do it that way either. So uh, obviously that had an impact, but um, I don't think there's any research project out there that hasn't been impacted or halted by, by COVID. So Absolutely. I think we've, we've done okay. And um, our third aim was to test fidelity. So that was uh, for myself as the chief uh, investigator to observe how GLAD was delivered in the clinic. So I was able to go to one clinic face-to-face -face and then observe three other sessions online. And uh, there was one in Adelaide and one in, in Melbourne. So really just to see how closely the clinician delivered the class according to the GLAD back principles. And then finally, our, our fourth aim is what we're doing right now. And that is looking at the experiences of both the clinician and the patient through qualitative interviews. And, and that's where we're at at the moment. So we're hoping to wrap up the study by the end of the year and certainly commence writing up all our findings uh, towards the end of the year. And once those papers have been published, assuming, and obviously that we'll make available the papers that have been published up to this point in time, but um, I, I guess once there's uh, greater evidence, particularly around the efficacy of the GLADVAC program, I'm assuming that then the next step is to get this out to, um, uh, to chiropractors and, and other health providers and get them using uh, GLADVAC. Do you, do you envisage that this will be a program in the future that may be sort of uh, taught over a weekend seminar or uh, over, over online or, or something like that? And someone will get, uh, I guess, a, um, a registered GLADVAC chiropractor. Is that how you sort of see it rolling out? Yeah, certainly. The, um, obviously, COVID has thrown a spanner in the works and um, we uh, want to be guided by the results of our feasibility study. And certainly if they're positive, uh, we want to take the next step and roll it out. 
uh, in Australia and certainly the hip and knee program has run a program online and I think it's been quite successful and uh, it's opened up opportunities for us in, in this uh, pandemic to really look at that as a, a form of delivery. So that would be the goal. From a researcher's perspective, the goal would be to look at the efficacy and, and its effectiveness and obviously a, a fully powered randomised controlled trial would be the goal and uh, we're hopeful of obviously finding uh, considerable funding to to look at running that but that could be a couple of years down the track but uh, once we finish up this, this study and uh, we're hopeful the results are positive and that will give us uh, an opportunity to really consider rolling it out so chiropractors and as you say other health care providers can um, have the opportunity to take on the program and then see if it's a fit for their clinic. Look I think it's uh, it certainly makes a lot of sense uh, most chiropractors uh, as I said earlier, uh, prescribe exercise to patients uh, or in, at least very least encourage them to do exercise. So it tends to fit very much with a chiropractic model and, and importantly, it uh, clearly fits very much with an evidence-based model as well. So uh, I think there's um, a great deal of opportunity for um, the profession and for, for this program to, to, really, um, to really do very, very well, assuming that it uh, does get the positive um, uh, randomized controlled trials and, and that all the evidence is there to, to back it up. It certainly seems like it's heading in the right direction at least. Yeah, I think so. And um, obviously it takes a lot of work and uh, certainly very grateful for the collaborators involved too as well. Obviously we have uh, uh, the, the Danes that are involved and we got them out here last November to do the course and, and they were fantastic. And um, Canada through Professor Greg Korchuk's involved too as well. So they've run a 12-month pilot in Canada and um, the results are, are very much in line with the Danish results. And uh, our, our study is only a small one. It's a, it's a short-term study of three months. And uh, there are other countries uh, looking to be involved. We, we had a chat to uh, representatives from Switzerland as well. So uh, it's gaining traction and, um, and, and it's important to note that it's... It's just a way to look at things. It's not the only way. And we're certainly glad that doesn't claim superiority to other programs. But um, one day we'll know if we, if we run that trial. Matt, thank you so much for your time uh, this morning. I really appreciate you sharing uh, your insights. And I think it's been a really great discussion to have. Fantastic. Appreciate the time too, Anthony. Thank you. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope you found this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm -hmm.